It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues. Pope Francis has generated headlines worldwide for his unorthodox approach to the papacy, public acts of humility, and renewed emphasis on compassion. He'll travel to the United States for the first time later this month. The cornerstone of this monumental trip is the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia. On this episode, Nancy Gibbs, editor of Time Magazine, leads a conversation about the Church of Pope Francis. She is joined by an esteemed panel of speakers. Michael Gerson is a nationally syndicated columnist whose writing appears twice weekly in the Washington Post. Matt Malone is president and editor-in-chief of America Media, which publishes America, the National Catholic Review. He is a Jesuit priest. Gary Wills is a professor, author, and historian. He's received the Pulitzer Prize and numerous other awards. Wills is the author of the books Why I Am a Catholic and The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. This conversation took place in July at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Here are Nancy Gibbs, Michael Gerson, Matt Malone, and Gary Wills. Thank you all. I want to introduce my illustrious um, panel, uh, starting with Matt Malone, who is the editor-in-chief, the youngest editor-in-chief in the history of America, uh, ordained in 2012, is that right? But a has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, was a congressional speechwriter at one point. Uh, Gary Wills, one of the preeminent historians and public intellectuals of our age, uh, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Lincoln at Gettysburg, and, and relevant for our purposes, a former Jesuit seminarian, professor, and author among his many books of uh, Papal Sin and Why I'm a Catholic, and most recently, The Future of the... Catholic Church with Pope Francis. I'm not at all intimidated by his 20-some honorary degrees. Um, and Michael Gerson, syndicated columnist, one of the more, most thoughtful commentators on the role of faith and values in public life, a regular figure you see on the PBS NewsHour and on other television talk shows, and a former, um, was it policy in the Bush White House? Policy advisor. Policy advisor. Um, and now a visiting professor at Duke. So we have, a, we have an ecumenical group uh, to talk about the Church of Pope Francis, but I want to start just at a very high altitude for a moment about the world of Pope Francis because I, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued as someone who's very intrigued by leadership at what seems as though we are at a moment where the most conspicuous, if not always consequential, leaders on the world stage right now are there by virtue either of the power of their armies or their economies or their nationalist um, stature, whether Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or even a Narendra Modi, Angela Merkel. And yet here we have a new leader on the world stage who, for all intents and purposes, does not have an army or an economy or a nation to command, and yet it seems has taken up a leadership position that I'm not even sure we knew it was possible for anyone to occupy. And so I'd be curious for each of you to just help us think a little about Pope Francis's world leadership role and what kind of a model it is, whether you think it is or is not, can or cannot work uh, in a new way. Father Malone, why don't you start out? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that actually the, the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, being in command of an army, of a powerful economy, being in a uh, uh, um, a, a worldly position of power um, are usually what constitutes uh, a leader uh, and is the source of their authority. Um, in, the, in the case of Pope Francis, the absence of those things does not constitute his authority, but in a strange kind of way, it constitutes his credibility, right? Hmm. Because um, he is perceived to be I think, um, and probably is at the moment, certainly in the eyes of the Western media, the most credible public figure on the planet, right? Um, and that is largely because I think, be, in part, due to the absence of those very factors. I mean, he, uh, he doesn't seem to be in this for the money. <laughs> he's, not, uh, he's not in some other way self-serving. Um, 
he was called into this service. Uh, it was not, some, not something that he sought. Um, and he is and he's able to speak in a language that people uh, of every class and way of life can hear and appropriate. Well, you say he lacks a number of things. On the other hand, he has uh, acquaintance with one billion, two million Catholics, Christians around the world. I shouldn't limit it to Catholics. He doesn't. And he knows he can't direct them by himself. Uh, what really makes him credible is that he, want, he takes as his model John the 23rd. He came in second at the conclave held eight years earlier. And he was asked at the time, if you had won, what name would you have taken? And he said, John the 24th, uh, which tells you, John the 23rd is often uh, said to have changed the church. He didn't aspire to that and certainly didn't do that. What he did was call the Second Vatican Council. And the council fathers called in a whole generation of theologians who had been silenced by Pius XII and who were speaking for the people of God, and they changed the church. Uh, now, this pope said when he came in, I was a failure as a Jesuit provincial because I didn't consult enough, include enough. He tried to do it on his own. He thought he had to make the very difficult decision under a military government. Do I let my priests get exposed to danger by picking up liberation theology or quash them? Uh, well, he tried to steer a middle path, but he did it by himself. And he said, that's where I failed. And you'll notice now he's trying to bring people in at the synods, uh, bring people in constantly. He's going to visit the Shroud of Turin. Uh, is that an authentic shroud or not? His spokesman said, it's the image of a suffering poor man. Where else do you expect to find Jesus? And he's taking two busloads of poor people to have a special tour at night and be put up and lodged and all of that. He doesn't go by himself with a lot of pomp and ceremony. So he's a great leader because great leaders knew, know they have to have followers and they have to animate them, not dictate to them. And here's Michael Gerson. I think it's fair to say I'm an admiring outsider. I'm not a Catholic. Um, but this is one of the most extraordinary instances of rebranding of our times. Um, if you had uh, asked uh, two years ago or two or three years ago an average person, Catholic, non-Catholic in America, what their image of the Catholic Church was, you would have gotten a very negative set of uh, responses that had to do with scandals, and, you know, including, for goodness sake, the arrest of the Pope's butler. Um, looked like the Holy Spirit was on an extended vacation. Um, and, uh, uh, and now, if you ask that question, you get an entirely different answer. And he did not intend that as an act of rebranding, I don't think. He, he's a very authentic figure. Um, but it will be studied at Harvard Business School for a long time um, as an example. And I think it's inseparable as both these re true experts have argued, that this is uh, inherent to his theological task. Uh, he is, um, I know the best way to say this, but he's a consistently anti-clerical figure. Okay? And for someone who's a Protestant to have a pope who's an anti-clerical figure is an odd notion. Okay? like a Mormon distillery or, um, you know, <laughs> Presbyterian laughter or... Um, I can take issue. Um, but, it, you know, he has consistently said, um, you know, challenged ecclesiastical moralism as an opponent, okay? Um, and a lot of people in the broader society and the media and other things, you know, figure, well, if you empty Christianity of its... Moralism, what do you have left, right? And he says what you have left. There is a profound personalism at the heart of his teaching that says people matter more than ethics, people matter more than institutions, people matter more than religion. Um, and that is an unbelievably powerful uh, social message. Um, I just add one more thing. Uh, 
it's, it's a powerful social message, and he accompanies it, just bluntly put, by acting like Jesus, okay? The example of Jesus in the gospel. Um, and that is, I, even cynical, secular people, when they see that image even partially reflected in another human being, it has a, amazing power, amazing power to persuade and that's the source of true authority in the church. That's con- traditionally the source of authority. And he's restored that authority to the Catholic Church. Could I just add, now that you've brought up clericalism, when he got chosen finally, he did not choose John the 24th. He chose Francis because Francis was not a cleric. He was not a priest. St. Francis was a subversive uh, person and totally outside the careerism which the Pope equates with clericalism. What do you think happened in those eight years that accounts for that change of nomenclature? Well, he had a a kind of falling out with his fellow Jesuits. Uh, He never went to visit the Jesuit residence when he went there as an archbishop. He didn't uh, plan to be buried in a Jesuit cemetery. He didn't plan to... uh, retire to a Jesuit retirement home. And the interesting thing is that when he became the archbishop, uh, he adopted much of liberation theology that he had been uh, checking beforehand. But the, the weird and wonderful thing is that he probably became an archbishop because he was on the outs with the Jesuits and John Paul hated Jesuits. <laughs> interesting. So can... If I may, I I think that's a very interesting point because in the the conclave that elected him, I think that the other cardinals saw an archbishop from Latin America and they did not see a Jesuit. They did not think of him as a Jesuit. I think they forgot (laughs) that he was a Jesuit. Um, Because I'm not sure that they would have voted the way that they did if they knew that this was what was to come. Now, they, 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 they may, and on reflection, say this has actually been a wonderful thing for the church. But I think if, from the other side of that choice, I'm not sure they would have made it if they were really remembered that he was a Jesuit. And, and, and even more importantly than that, he comes from a religious order, right? Uh, I mean, the, the key difference, I think, between in the ecclesiology of Protestants and Catholics is when Protestants disagree with one another, they often found new churches. When Catholics disagree with one another, we found new religious orders, right? Um, and so baked into every religious order is a, a, a reform movement, right? Um, and that was the charism that any religious, uh, but certainly a Jesuit, was going to bring to this office. Um, but I don't think that that was foremost in their minds. No, I think foremost in their minds was this is a man who is made bishop Archbishop and Cardinal by John Paul, by the conservative Pope. You know, you talked about how, the, how powerfully welcomed and electrifying he has been to sort of the, the public at large. At, at this point, is it too soon to have an understanding of how the, the Vatican hierarchy, the Curia, the Cardinals view what they got? <laughs> how much division has, has surfaced, what the internal dynamic is in terms of the, the model and the leadership that he has been pursuing. Matt would know more than I. I, I think it's too soon to tell. I think there, there's, there's a lot of rumblings. Uh, you know, the, the, the curial operation is designed by nature to um, stand athwart change, <laughs> right, um, to pervert, preserve the status of, of, of this office. But... Um, what I do think, though, is, is and this, this is in, refers to something that, that Michael said earlier, is you know, John Paul II gave us, bequeathed to the church, this philosophy of personalism. But he was, in the end, really a philosopher when it came to personalism. But this personalism that we have in Francis is pastoral. He's a pastor, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a personalist pastoral strategy. And what he is saying is, you know, Ultimately, in, our, in, the, in, the, in the Catholic faith, truth is, involves propositions, but it is ultimately a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And thus, everything that we need, do 
and think and, and, uh, in the world has to see the person at the center of the question. And I think that has a resonance with, with Catholics of, of a wide range of, of, of viewpoints. And they are responding positively to that, even though there's a certain sense that... I mean, Francis is interested in, in processes, not necessarily outcomes, right? He trusts the process, and he, he, he has a deep faith that the Holy Spirit is actually guiding us. And so he'll say, I don't know where this process is going to lead us, say, when it comes to the Synod on the family. Um, and yet that's going to create some anxiety among a lot of people because there isn't a corporation in the United States that would hire a CEO who said, I don't have a plan, right? <laughs> Uh, I'd just like to set some things in motion and see what happens. I, I, I would just add that I, I do think that I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of doctrinal changes, but we are seeing the merciful application of pastoral teaching. Okay? And that, I think, is making a big impression, both within the church and, and without. That's when he says, who, who am I to judge? Right. Um, you know, He's not calling into question the doctrines of the church. He's, he is talking about the most merciful human application of, of doctrine. Right. Um, and I, so I think that that, is a, that has been a big... Uh, I, I would just, also on the reform side, I would just mention that uh, it was Benedict that began a lot of the internal reforms. Um, but um, on the financial side, I talked to uh, John Allen recently, who covers the Pope for the Boston Globe, um, and he said that the peop- the, all the right people are scared at the Vatican. <laughs> okay. um, and I, there is a new budget process. There's a new uh, accounting process. There's new transparency standards that are just coming into effect this year. So if you're going to talk about reform, the one area where the Pope, I think, has had a lot of immediate effect has been in the financial affairs of the church. There have been other areas of reform, women in leadership or other things that haven't had as much progress. Is he a Rorschach? I'm, I'm struck by how liberals have celebrated his stance on climate change and obviously the, the focus on social justice, income inequality, but conservatives can point to someone who is every bit as adamant about um, the church's position on life and on traditional moral values. And so it, it I'm curious about how it is that he can have these enormous approval ratings given the fact that, that people from vastly different ideological positions are having to ignore some substantial portion of what it is that he stands for. How does that work? Well, I think we just heard that he's humane in his application. He hasn't changed the doctrine, but consider the way he talks about doctrinal matters. He says, the confessional should not be a torture chamber. Eucharist is not a prize for good behavior, but a medicine for the weak. And asked on the plane about the teaching on abortion, he said, oh, that's all settled. But of course, the woman who makes the decision does it with her confessor, which is what's happening, of course. 90% of Catholics uh, practice contraception. Uh, And so he was, in effect, saying, we're not changing the doctrine, but we know it's not being used. <laughs> you know, that's the way things change in the church often, by desuetude, by the fact that nobody's paying attention anymore. Uh, that's where usury went, that's where interdicts went, that's where indulgences went, that's where other things are going now. Uh, when uh, Pius IX condemned democracy and free speech and all of that, uh, Gladstone in England said to Lord Acton, the Catholic historian, I won't have loyal uh, constituents anymore. The Pope's told them that I'm an invalid ruler. And he said, don't worry, I can tell you much worse things about Catholic teaching, but but we don't pay any attention to it. (laughs) I think there is a way in which he is, and uh, a Rorschach, that that is. Uh, People project a lot onto him. And in part because it's, as has been said, he's calling us back to first principles. and as, as he said in the interview with Father Spadaro that we published in America, he said, uh, you know, what is essential is the first proclamation, Jesus Christ who saved you. And our witness in the world is to give an account of the joy that is within us as a result of that 
a heartfelt realization. And, and so that is, though, a force that is prior to and transcends our you know, secular, political, even ecclesiastical categories and factions. Um, and that's why I think you have <laughs> some people saying, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, he seems to be moving in this direction, he seems to be moving in that direction. But I think if anybody sees Francis as, you know, electing to implement the agenda of one faction over another, uh, at a, certainly at an ideological level, they, they're really misreading the situation. So I, I would, can I just add, though, that I think there are a lot of people on the Catholic right in America who are feeling a little disoriented uh-huh. okay, because of the direction of church teaching. And not, you know, it's not in a just political way because, you know, Catholic teaching is broad and it challenges both sides. But there are, there are a lot of people that feel culturally besieged right. on the right, not just the Catholic right. And their hope is that the Pope will take their side in such con- in controversy, right? Um, and he just, just doesn't seem to think this way. He describes the role as a field hospital, right. not kind of one side in a, in a war, right? right. Um, so, uh, you know, the church is supposed to take care of the casualties of all of the elements or, or pressures of our time. Right. Um, and that is, a, it's a different conception. And I do think that... Uh, it's been a little bit harder on the right to kind of understand that direction. Can you talk a little think, about the challenge he has posed to American evangelicals? Well, I, I will have to say, because that is my background, you know, I, I don't come from a Catholic background. I went to Wheaton College, you know, which is a pretty conservative... Billy Graham's college? Right, exactly, pretty conservative place. The, when I went there, the joke on campus was that the administration had banned premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. But... Um, <laughs> But I think it's fair to say that evangelicals are themselves in a period of disorientation where they feel like there are cultural trends that are definitely not going in their favor, essentially libertarian cultural trends. They feel besieged themselves. And they have a model of social engagement, the model of the religious right, that failed, that turned people against them rather than persuading. Um, And many realize this now and are looking for their own a new model of social engagement. How do you both, uh, you know, defend your rights, but not just be seen as one special interest group among many trying to impose your own vision? How, how do you escape that? And I, I've been involved in a project recently that was done by the Hewlett Foundation, where I've been involved in surveying a, a many a number of Catholic pa- or not, uh, evangelical pastors and cultural leaders. Uh, on this issue, on the kind of models of cultural engagement. And the example of Francis comes up again and again and again as someone who can hold to traditional doctrine and do so in a winsome, persuasive way. Um, And uh, so I think that there's a real influence beyond the community. Well, the Pope isn't an evangelical. He went to an evangelical, he had many friends in Buenos Aires, and he went to one of their services and knelt down and was blessed by them, which shocked the Catholic right. And um, some of his friends formed the delegation that went to his investiture in Rome, all evangelicals. And by the way, he has the same relationship with Muslims. Uh, He was a friend of the sheikh in Buenos Aires, went to his mosque, went to his funeral, (coughs) and in the joy of the gospel, there are two paragraphs that praise the Quran and the spirituality of Muslims. Uh, now, that's going farther than any other recent pope, anyway. And I should say that he doesn't take the side of any faction. Uh, on principle, he said, that's what I did as a provincial. I shouldn't have. Uh, but also, he has a challenge no other pope in history has had. He's living right next door to his possessor. Uh, he can't. He's very careful not to tread on his toes. In fact, if you look at the joy of the gospel or at the new Laudato Si, Laudato Si, uh, look at the notes. John Paul, John Paul, John Paul, uh, Paul six, Paul six, Paul six, uh, Benedict, Benedict, Benedict. Uh, he cites his predecessors 
to show that there is a continuity in what he's upholding. And he has to be on good terms, as good as he can be, with his predecessor because his predecessor's loyalists are all through the curia and the hierarchy. Uh, So it's a very difficult task. And I, I think that's one way you should read one of his comments that caused a lot of notion, uh, emotion. He said, I, I probably won't be a pope for long. Uh, what was he saying? He would be killed, he would resign, uh, he would die. I think he, that was a, a very well-earned compliment to Benedict. He was saying, in effect, the papacy is not something you hang on to for life for no matter what. If you feel your, your powers are failing, you should <coughs> resign. Uh, and in effect, it was a pledge to do that and to say, this is the precedent, precedent we should all follow. And I think myself that Benedict, that was a very noble thing he did because he saw the tremendous decline of John Paul, you know, who was a drooling, incapacitated person at the end. And he didn't want the church to go through that again. There, there is a way, I think, uh, if I may just return to this point about the uh, American right. Um, as, you, as you pointed out, Michael, he, he, he addressed this question of uh, homosexuality and priesthood on the plane on the way back from South America. And the way in which a pope traditionally would answer that question is, well, the, what the church teaches, which we have always taught, is X, Y, and Z, Right. But he didn't, he didn't begin his answer with what? He began with who, right? Because he, he, he fundamentally believes that what we are called to be are evangelists, not activists, and that it's a, his, his pastoral approach and his way of being in the world is that of encounter, not confrontation, right? And I think that that's particularly important now because if, if we continue to see our engagement in the public life, certainly at this country, as a series of confrontations and battles that have to be fought, it will, it will inevitably lead to a kind of Masada complex in which we, we feel we are besieged by forces around us. And that, that narrowness, that fear, I think in the Pope's mind, is contrary to the, to the, the generosity, the openness, uh, the inclusiveness of the gospel proclamation itself. One of the other statements in Joy of the Gospel that drove the, the right crazy and inspired Rush Limbaugh to call Francis a Marxist was when he, he rejected a, quote, crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. And Laudate C, in addition to the statement about stewardship of, of the earth, also included a, a significant um, indictment about, about capitalist institutions that operate without regard to the impact on the environment. How much is that, um, do you think, does that account for some of the discomfort that, um, that you feel on the right with the position that he's taking and the, the leadership role that he's playing? Well, I, I've heard that a lot. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure these two gentlemen have as well. Uh, does the Pope hate capitalism? Right? Um, does he hate the United States? He's never been to the United States. Um, this will be his first trip in September. Uh, the Pope dislikes two things above all else, uh, greed and ideology. Right? He is strongly distrustful of both. Um, and so it, it really is a misreading of what he is saying to think that the, uh, he is aligning the church with a certain ideological commitment to an, an economic system, right? Um, what he is saying is that the prevailing economic system, which he re- refers to in that quotation, um, the ways in which that is being lived out in the world today uh, are in many ways manifestly unjust. And he's calling our attention to that. But it's interesting, I think, that Americans hear that as... Um, Oh, well, he, is, he, is he critical of this American-style capitalism? Is he saying that the way that we do it in this country uh, as an idea, as a system, is somehow fatally flawed? And I think, well, why does that elicit that reaction within us, right? Um, 
it, do we have some suspicion that it might be? Is that is that what he's <laughs> is that what he is, is that what he's is, is that actually what he's touching on there? And if so, that that's probably a decent question to be asking ourselves. Uh, but in the end, um, I, I think he, what he, he's really calling our attention to is the way in which we are living out um, this, uh, this, this moment. Well, you cited how, him coming to the United States in, in September, and that's going to... I don't think we can begin to imagine what that is going to be like. Um, and, Michael, we were talking yesterday about what when he stands up in front of a joint session of Congress, also something that we have not seen before, that's right. going to be quite a scene. It will. It's the first time that will have ever happened, a, a, a pope addressing a joint session of Congress. Uh, but uh, it is a normal stop on papal trips. He often will address parliaments. That's not unusual, that, um, and he's done it even recently. Um, and usually he, he gives a strong affirmation of Catholic social teaching on both sides, you know, family and pro-life issues and immigration and poverty. And, um, you know, in, in the U.S. Congress, it's, it's going to be interesting how people applaud. Um, <laughs> the, uh, my my uh, prediction is that every member will applaud for everything, but that the intensity will be different on, both si- on either side. Um, but it, it is. And I, I think a lot of Americans do wonder, what does he think of us? Okay? Um, you know, we know what John Paul II thought of us. Um, you know, this was conditioned by the Cold War. He viewed America as the leader of the alliance against communism. It was a very clear view of how, what America was. Um, Benedict had a more intellectual view, and I, I defer here, but... Um, but I think he saw the American approach to church-state as much superior like to the French approach. And when he came to America, quoted Tocqueville a great deal, praising American democracy. Okay? So he had an intellectual appreciation for American democracy. This is someone who I think is ambivalent about America. Okay? Um, he, this is the mothership of global capitalism, and uh, he is, I think, going to bring a, you know, a message there. But he doesn't have much experience uh, with Americans, um, and so I do think that people are wondering, you know, what is he, how does he view us? And, um, so. Well, we've heard that he opposes greed and careerism, uh, and the common mark there is power. He distrusts power. He's taken away many of the trappings of power around him, and for very good reason. Uh, We should distrust power, but that's one of the aspects of original sin. It was Acton who said power corrupts and absolute power, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. People forget that was said about Renaissance popes. It was the power of the pope that he was attacking. This this pope knows that, and he is, uh, he doesn't even like to use the term pope. When he was asked, how, what does it feel like to be pope? And he said, well, I'm a bishop. I've been a bishop. I just changed dioceses. Now I'm bishop of Rome, which is the title he prefers. Uh, so I think that uh, reading it, as, as Matt says, it shouldn't be ideological. Uh, it should apply to all of our dealings with power. power. People in power tend to abuse power, uh, whether it's the church power or economic power or... Uh, national power, uh, and that's not only sound teaching, it's very old-fashioned and, and traditional. Can I add just one point that I, I should have? I, this is a pope, because of his background in the developing world, because he was a bishop in the developing world, has ha- a certain perspective or view of globalization. That's probably very different than the American one. Um, so, you know, I think conservatives in America would, would fault him for not understanding the amazing power of capitalism in our time to bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, okay, at, at once, and that's a great moral achievement. But he is calling attention clearly to the, the dark side of globalization, the trade in human beings, the trade in, uh, you know, bonded labor and sexual trafficking and... Um, and the exploitation that comes from in capitalist systems that are not constrained by healthy values and institutions informed by respect for human dignity. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't discount that 
he brings a perspective here, and it's a developing world perspective that's sometimes different from the way Americans often view the world. So now for the first time, I think, with the latest cardinals from Tonga and Vietnam and Myanmar, that the that European cardinals are no longer a majority of cardinal electors. What are the implications you see for this whole potential reorienting of the church towards the global south? Well, I think, I mean, there's a way in which the, um, the church in, its, uh, in articulating Catholic social teaching in the last 40 years has been aligned with the global south. Uh, but he, this is a pope who follows words with deeds, right? So he doesn't just announce a year of mercy. The next day he recognizes the Armenian genocide, right? Uh, he doesn't just say we need to hold bishops accountable for their actions. He puts in place juridical structures to do so. He doesn't just say the gospel uh, imperative is to uh, be on the side, to have a preferential option for the poor. He actually takes their side and, um, and then uh, institutionalizes this in his, in his choices. Um, it is a... This, but you're right, he's bringing to bear a particular perspective that comes from his experience. And actually, his, this tension between his critique of global capitalism, perhaps his ignorance of the United States, what the benefits are of our particular f- system, is to me reminiscent somewhat of, uh, of, uh, of John Paul II, who had a particular view of communism that came from his experience in Poland. And for, for that reason, he was suspicious of, uh, in, a, in a deeply seated way, of uh, liberation theology in Latin America, right? Because it, it, it kind of it relied in a certain way on a particularly particular Marxist critique, right? That was theologized, and but and he he couldn't quite see. Well, maybe it, maybe it's actually different there than it was in Poland. Um, the last thing I'll just say is that it's very interesting that this, this pope does address national assemblies, but his predecessors really didn't, and, and mainly because it is kind of a higher wire act. Um, and he, I think, I think John Paul addressed the Polish assembly, but Poland was always the exception for John Paul, right? <laughs> um, but, mainly, but he's really going right into the middle of it, and it, the optics are going to be very interesting. We have two Catholics, Boehner and Biden, who are going to be sitting right behind him, and, and you're right, Michael, like... Do they both stand at the same time? Do they both decide to <laughs> remain seated? Are we going to have this thing like we usually have at the State of the Union? <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be very interesting. Gary, you touched on um, how change does and does not happen. And I'm curious, you know, when Pope Francis talks about the need to show mercy towards divorced Catholics, again, speaks in, in different terms what you see as the possibility for real change when it comes to everything from the role of women to confession to um, homosexuality or any of the other what have been often the flashpoint issues? Well, he's not going to make any change by dictation from above. What he's working toward, I believe, is the recognition that change has already occurred. If you are a Catholic and you've had no experience yourself or in your family or of people around you, of divorce or of homosexuality, uh, then you're not a Catholic who sees the point of much of what comes out of Rome. Uh, And if you are inclusive of what, you know, he said before the Synod, consult your faithful before you come to Rome. And then when they came to Rome, uh, there, there was a leak earlier that seemed to be more liberal and then there was a reaction in the synod and then there was a harsher not terribly harsh but a harsher and when the Pope accepted it he said I'm so glad you all spoke what you really think Uh, that's the way we make progress and uh, now we'll publish the whole proceeding see the synods were set up after Second Vatican Council to be an act of collegiality to show the bishops rule the church John Paul shut that down. He, he called the Senate, but he said, you, keep, you, you hold it in secret. You submit your report in secret to me, and I will use it or not use it as I deem fit. Uh, so when the Pope said, we'll just publish the whole thing, uh, that was a very important step away. Uh, and now when they hold the second Senate, 
they know not only that they should consult more than they did for the first, but that their votes and their arguments will be known, uh, which will have an inhibiting effect on some of them. So what should we expect to see from... I'm sorry. Well, I, I would only add, uh, just in the context of the American visit on this, the, the main purpose of the visit is actually to be in Philadelphia for the world meeting of families, right? Um, and I would expect that what he says there will have some conservative elements as well. Um, when he speaks on family, you know, this is a pope who believes in the devil and often talks about the family being under attack by the devil. Um, it, you know, the narrative of the press is often this guy is a progressive uh, maverick, right? But there, that's not the whole narrative here. This is, a, you know, a person that... Um, I think when he speaks there, we'll have some very conservative things to say that confront the culture, the, broad, the broader culture. Um, and, uh, and that will be part of his message, but it just, I think often the coverage is pretty simplistic and one-sided. So. Well, we will be just fully ramping up the primary season for the 2016 campaign. And we have in the Republican field of 715 candidates... Um, <laughs> A number of converted Catholics like Jeb Bush and born Catholics, you know, Chris Christie and um, Rick Santorum. And it's a, it, it, I would think that this visit and the, the debate around it and the issues he's raising are potentially going to be complicated for some, if not all, of those well, candidates. Some bishops are already emboldened. So the bishops in Iowa just yesterday were uh, challenging the candidates that come through Iowa for the caucus uh, in preparation for the caucus to talk about ca- social justice issues. Um, and, I, you know, I think that this has made a lot of issues from the environment to social justice. Um, I don't think it's going to change what Republicans necessarily say on a variety of issues, but it makes a, a number of issues unavoidable. You can't, you can't just hide from them. You know, I'm not a scientist when, you know, on climate or other things. Um, and I think that that's been one effect of the Pope's outspoken message on these issues in, in American politics is that Catholic politicians and other politicians that come, particularly come from a faith perspective are now forced to confront, engage a, a set of issues that they wouldn't normally do. And I would add politicians in the hierarchy. Uh, they are also changing their tune to some extent. Luckily, we can uh, rely on their careerism. The path up was very clear under John Paul and Benedict. Uh, no matter the, no, none of your faithful are practicing uh, the condemnation of contraception, the only way you rise in the hierarchy is to say, oh, we're totally against contraception. Uh, that's the way you got rewarded. Now they're going to say, well, that's not the easy first path up. Talking about the poor is now a career choice that a lot of them are going to be making. <laughs> they, would, they would not have become careerist before if they had been so principled as uh, to uh, rise only out of what they really believed. Yeah, I, I think he's going to say something that's going to affirm and challenge everyone. Uh, but those will be different things, depending what is received is received according to the mode of the receiver, right, is what Aquinas taught us. Uh, but I, I also think that, uh, that there is a, there's a way in which his, his mere uh, presence in the public debate allows us to rethink the larger question of what exactly is the role of faith in public life because, and to have a conversation about that, because there are a number of candidates who, uh, presidential candidates and others, who the first thing that they would do when they get to an Iowa breakfast is give an account of their faith and talk about how we need more faith in public life. Then when the Pope enters into public life in, in a way that they don't like, they say, well, what are you doing in public life? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, you're not a scientist, you're a pastor, and, and all the rest. And, you know, I think that that, you know, rather than, than, than calling out what might be the hypocrisy or the inconsistency and all of that, it, I think there's an invitation there to have a conversation about, okay, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Right. And, um, you know, when, when 
when Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and, and, and to God what is God's, he was not thereby dividing the world in half, right, and saying this part of it is subject to God's sovereignty and this part is not, right? Um, so the separation of church and state is a good thing and, as Benedict appreciated, can actually lead to the flourishing of religion in a country, right? Um, but the separation of the church and, politi- and the political is inconceivable, right, um, because the gospel makes such radical demands on every part of our lives. And so that would be an interesting conversation to have in this, uh, as a result of, of this. And, and his being in the middle of the rostrum in the U.S. House of Representatives is going to be a, a great opportunity to have that conversation. You know, when the Rick Santorum say uh, the Pope is not a scientist, uh, the, the Pope agrees. Uh, he didn't speak He's as a, a scientist. Chemist, though, right? <laughs> no. he studied chemistry. And uh, Rick's not a scientist either, yeah, right. is he? <laughs> he, was, he was really taking a line from Joan Rivers. <laughs> Can we talk? Uh, that's what that encyclical is. Can we talk? Can we listen to this, this scientist and that scientist? Can we look at the actual condition of the poor? Can we do all of these things? He's, he, he doesn't speak as a scientist. He doesn't uh, give it as a, a, a set of, of directions. Uh, he says there are all these things happening, and we have to take them into account, and especially we have to take into account the plight of the poor these millions and millions and millions of people who have lost out on the materialistic game. I'd add that when you spend a little time with the encyclical, the environmental encyclical, um, it's not about climate change, okay? Um, It's it's very much a critique of technocratic and utilitarian worldview, that we can solve problems without conscious application of human values, that all we need is technology, or all we need... And it's a, you know, when people look at it, you know, I, I am you know, being guilty of what others have done, but it's, it's not a liberal view of the world in the sense progress is, gonna, is great and we're going to, um, you know, achieve great wonders. Um, it's deeply suspicious of a lot of the trends of our time. It's apocalyptic in yeah. places. And... So it's a warning. Don't trust in the idols of our time. Okay? And that uh, I, I steps on a lot of toes, yeah. including in the environmental movement and in both sides in politics. So. There are lots of topics we haven't gotten to, Cuba and foreign policy, but I want to throw it open to the floor so that you all get a, <laughs> get a chance to, to pick where we shall go from here. There are many Catholics and Christians, especially in the younger generation, that have chosen to follow the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law. Do you think that Pope Francis, in a very subtle manner, is trying to say to us, you know, putting abortion aside, that as long as we, you know, love thy neighbor as you, you know, love your brother as you love thyself, uh, can you, can they follow a parallel line by, you know, sort of deviating from the dogma like, confession, you know, marriage after you get a divorce, premarital sex. Do you think he's saying that it's all right to follow your way uh, without, you know, following the strict dogma as long as you love thy neighbor? I think what he's saying is something more like this. At the heart of our faith is not an ideology or a philosophy or a set of propositions, but a person. Uh, named Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. And um, that for Catholics, as the Second Vatican Council taught in Dei Verbum, truth is ultimately a person. And when we forget that, um, then, then, we, then, then truth really does become strictly propositional. And by that, it, become, and by that, it becomes something more like uh, a weapon that we beat each other over the head with, Right? What he's saying is not that the rules are necessarily wrong, though he might have that view uh, about something. What he's really saying is that they're not the essence of our faith. The essence of our faith is this relationship. It's relationship. And only within the context of a living relationship with the one who is truth can you, can you discern how to live out what the church proposes as also to be true. 
Yeah. Right. Um, in other words, without a, a lived um, personal commitment to the, the first proclamation of the church, uh, which is this person, Jesus Christ, then really what the church teaches is ultimately uh, unintelligible on some level. It's certainly at an existential level, right? So he's inviting us to wrestle with this, these things. And that the way in which, if something needs to change, the way in which it's going to change is through a personal encounter with the Lord and with one another. And, um, but it, it can't begin from the point of view of uh, the, the letter of the law, because the, the catechism isn't a penal code, right? It's an expression of the lived experience of the church at this moment in its pilgrimage. And, and so he's reframing the debate, say, can we talk, which is really where he's at. That question brought up the spirit of the law. It's interesting that the recent Pew poll shows a falling off in religion, uh, not only here but around the world, but a, a growth of people believing in spirituality. Uh, now, we've compared him to other kinds of leaders, but a, a, another leader to compare him to is the Dalai Lama. Uh, it's amazing how much he speaks to... I, I was uh, an interlocutor of, hers, of his on the stage before a big crowd in Chicago, and the... Uh, I've never seen such a, an enthralled audience. Uh, that kind of spirituality is not confined to Buddhism uh, or anything else. And I think the, the Pope is saying that when he says we, we can learn from the Muslims. Uh, we can be blessed by the evangelicals. He is talking about spirituality much more than about dogma. May I just quickly add that the, I, I, I agree with that. And what he's really saying is that the great threat to the church at this moment, it doesn't really come from people who are spiritual and not religious. It, 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 it comes from people who are religious and not spiritual. That's what he's calling us. And I'd like to go back to uh, something Gary Wills pointed out. The Pope, on his return uh, from the Philippines in the airplane, said he might only be here for another two or three years as Pope because he thought Popes ought to resign as Benedict did once they've lost the energy and so forth. And, of course, he only has one lung. So I ask if, in fact, he does uh, retire after two or three years, what will be his lasting effect on the church? Uh, will his changes in the curia be that? Will his example be that? Of course, this takes into account some of your suppositions who might follow him. Well, uh, if he makes changes in two years or 20 years, they won't be his. They'll be that of the church. The church is not the pope. And he knows that, and he doesn't want to be. Uh, if he carries out what he's trying to do, uh, setting up the commissions to study very terrible problems like pederasty, uh, calling synods that really consult the faithful, uh, then the church will have, be in the process of changing itself, whether he lives or dies. What do, you, do you have a th lasting legacy? Uh, you know, I think one of the great advantages of Christianity over the millennia has been uh, that its founder was a radical. Okay. You know, he was the one that, you know, that called a radical critique of pride and wealth. Um, he is the one that preached against the ecclesiastical moralism of his own time, of ossified re religious institutions. And so every time religious, Christian religious institutions get ossified and bureaucratic, as he, you know, has described, um, the most authentic reformer is the one who um, is the model of its founder, okay? 
And that is, I think, a real advantage for Christianity over the years. And that, to me, what I think will be his lasting contribution to call back to that uh, original example. Could you comment a little bit on the Council of Cardinals? Um, my husband and I have been fascinated with that because we're good friends with uh, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, who is one of the eight cardinals that are on this council, which is sort of like, I guess, the equivalent of a cabinet or something like that. What we find so interesting is that some of the names that in the cardinal conclave were being sounded as possible pope uh, uh, prospects are now part of this council of cardinals. It's sort of like team of rivals type uh, strategy. Could you comment on that, please? I'll be interested. He, this is the so-called C8, right? <laughs> um, the, uh, he is distrustful of the traditional structures through which the church is governed. Um, you know, when we uh, published this interview that Father Spadaro did with him at America, this interview did not go through the Vatican press office, right? Uh, it, when we, uh, when, when he looks for, when he's looking for bishops, the usual procedure is that kind of floats up from, from, the, from the diocese, says we're looking for this sort of person, and then the nuncio to the country gives three names to the Vatican, and then the Pope chooses one of them, right? He doesn't use that. There, 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 he's picked bishops who weren't even on that list in some dioceses, because he goes around the structure, calls people directly, and says, what, what is it that you need? It's the same model, that, and he's using that same model with this Council of Cardinals. He is he said, I need people in the room who tell me the truth, right, no matter what, and uh, who uh, are, are going to share in the vision that I have for this, for this office. Because he doesn't really have a vision for the church that, uh, apart from the vision of the Lord himself expressed in the gospel. But he does have a vision for this office and, and its relationship to the, to the local churches and uh, to the other governing structures of the church, and he has pulled people together that he that he thinks share that vision. Good morning. Thank you for this. I'm Ginny Galisa now. And uh, first, let me tell you that my very devout Catholic mother will be very proud that her Jewish daughter is here today. <laughs> and the first time I realized that Pope Francis was having such an impact on. Uh, the world was when my atheist friend insisted that I download the Pope app onto my telephone. <laughs> so, so my question is, is, how do you think this humanistic Pope will respond from a, his heart place about the issue of same-sex ma- same marriage? <laughs> well, I think he's going to answer the question the way he answered the question on the plane about homosexuality and priesthood, he's going to begin with who, right? Um, who, who are we actually talking about? Who and whom? And um, that is the key. I mean, he said, I'm a faithful son of the church. I believe what the church has taught here, right? But I can't believe that the, these people and these relationships mean nothing, right? And um, what's most important at this moment in his view um, is, 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 to, is to say we need to be free enough to have a conversation uh, about this that is open, that is transparent, and that begins from the point of view that while we, we ho- must hold fast to what has been revealed to us in Scripture and tradition, it is impossible that we have learned everything that there is to know about human sexuality. So it has to begin in a penitential key, um, Again, for him, it's about process. So in this image of the field hospital, um, for him, you remember that that he first gave that image in this interview um, with Father Spadaro. He said, I just think of the church as a field hospital. But the first question that he was asked in that interview was, who is Jorge Mario Bogolio? And he said, I am a sinner. And when you put those two things together, what you realize is that he sees himself first and foremost as a patient in the hospital, right? And it's precisely from that place of humility uh, and penitence that we need to have a, a conversation as a church that is open and transparent and, and built on, the, on our faith 
that the same spirit that spoke to our forebears speaks to us still. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you all for joining us. That was Nancy Gibbs, Michael Gerson, Matt Malone, and Gary Wills, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 3, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>